Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm your host Dominic Booth and I'm joined as always by our two experts Samuel Luckhurst and Tyrone Marshall. Good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon. Hello Dom, thanks for the intro, very kind as always. Well I've got to big you up haven't I, I've got to big you up. Someone's we'll, got uh, Exactly, exactly, that's my role. So we'll look ahead to the game against Wolves obviously this weekend in the Premier League for Manchester United and we'll also take a look back more generally at the Premier League season, which obviously comes to a close after the game at Molyneux. It'll be Nuno Espirito Santo, last game in charge of Wolves, actually, which probably United will take as a piece of good news, to be honest, after the difficulties they've had against Wolves. But in terms of the season, Samuel, United are going to finish second. That was sealed when um, Chelsea beat Leicester after the Fulham game. How would you assess the season as a whole for United? I guess... you know, there's, there's palpable progress with the second-place finish after third last season. Progressive is probably the buzzword, and it seems to have been the buzzword at United since Woodward came out with that statement in early March saying there was clear progress. I think when he said that at the time, that was a bit dubious, but then they had that brilliant win against City, and although second was confirmed the other night, it seems like they cemented second place two months ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. And I think at the start of the season, very few people saw United as genuine title challengers. The irony, I suppose, is that at one point it looked like they they had it in them to do that, particularly because this season was, up until maybe late January, early February time, pretty variable. You had the number one spot changing hands quite often. Tottenham were top in December. Liverpool looked like they'd got back to their old selves in mid to late December. Uh, Southampton were top as well, I think, at one point in, in November. But when United got to the summit, they they just lost their nerve they they got dizzy and I think unfortunately for them as soon as City went top it, it did feel different at the time and because of their experience because of the quality of their recruitment and the fact they've got the best manager on the planet you always sense that they would they would stay top and that's proven to be the case so that's that's the one that's probably the one thing that rankles for Solskjaer and, and the staff and the players but ultimately this team was not good enough this squad was nowhere near good enough to challenge for the title and so to finish second having finished third last season is is pretty good going I don't think again I don't think many people would have had United down to finish above Liverpool and there's an awful lot of mitigation with Liverpool having the season they've had with the the, the rotten lot they've had with injuries particularly to their defence and I think some of the players just pretty much got too comfortable there you've got players like Wijnaldum who's just about to leave last year of his contract I think naturally when you have an achievement like Liverpool had last season of winning the club's first title in 30 years certain players are bound to take their foot off the gas a little bit and I think there have been other examples of that like Alexander-Arnold but it's still pretty good going as I said for United to finish above them even though it has been a level playing field this season in, in crowdless stadia. But next season, it's it's a real acid test. Hopefully supporters will be packing out stadiums week in, week out. There'll be no more lockdowns, please God. I think, you know, I speak for pretty much the whole population and, and planet when I say that. And that's going to be that's going to be a huge test of Solskjaer uh, and, and of this United squad because the only way they can go now is, is up and that's the first. But the competitiveness, I think, next season is going to be particularly intense between four or five teams there. Tuchel has really shaken things up at Chelsea. I think Chelsea have arguably got a better squad than United at the moment and are probably going to back Tuchel in the the summer. City are the best team in England 
possibly soon to be the best team in the world. And there has to be retaliation from Liverpool. They're, they're too good a team. They've got too good a coach, too good players. You know, the players are too good just to um, get comfortable and, and fall by the wayside. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting year ahead, absolutely, Ty. But when we look back maybe a year ago from, well, not a year ago because we had lockdown, but a season ago from this conversation after United had uh, sealed top four on the last day of the season against Leicester, it was a bit more of a, a tense race for, for Champions League qualification that season. I think we spoke about closing the gap to the top teams and not being so far adrift as they were 30 points or whatever it was from from Liverpool last year. I think it's 12 points at the moment to Man City going into the final day of the season. But then how do United close the, this 12-point gap? You know, they've, they've done well, but it, going to this next level is probably going to be even more difficult. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, you know, Soskar's always talked about progress and, and Samuel's right, progress is the word that you can imagine plastered all over walls at, at Old Trafford and their, their London office. It's what they're what they kind of judge themselves by at the moment. But the, the problem with that is that once you hit second place, there's only one more step to climb and it's the hardest one of the lot in terms of going from second to first and, and winning the title. I think the good thing for United is City have been very good this season, have recovered from a shaky start. And I think you know Guardiola's proved a few a few doubters wrong from the start of the season and his ability to, to build a new team and improve their defence. But this is by no means a vintage City team, I don't think. This is not... You know, of Guardiola's three title-winning teams, this is the worst one, I would say, and the one most vulnerable to another challenge next year. They're going to win the league with mid-80s points. There's mitigating factors with that, obviously, with the, the schedule this season, and they've taken their foot off the gas recently. But we've still seen recently they're they're very vulnerable. They're maybe very vulnerable as so overdoing it, but they're still vulnerable, and it doesn't feel like they're a team. Obviously, if they sign Harry Kane or something like that, that could obviously change change the move the goalposts. But at the moment, it doesn't feel like they're a team that's going to get close to 100 points again. It's it's a City team that you feel can be reeled in. The problem for United is that they're not the only ones going to be doing the reeling next year. It, it does feel like a bit of a defining summer, really. We've we touched on Chelsea and how they've improved. Tuchel's, Tuchel's such a training ground coach that you can only imagine for a full pre-season and a proper pre-season, they will kick on again. Um, Samuel's right in Liverpool. You, you've got to expect them coming back. We've all, you know, we've all poked fun at their the amount of excuses they've made with injuries this year and barely a, you know, a, a media interview has gone by without them mentioning it. But, you know, it, it is the case that they've had serious injuries. I think if you, you know, if United have been without Maguire since September, Lindelof since October and Bailly since January, I don't think United would be in the top four, really, when you consider what they've faced. So it, it's to be expected that Liverpool will come again. So, it feels like the challenge for United isn't just going on and winning the league. It's holding on to second as well, because it feels like they're going to face some real competition for that. Um, they've set their store out in progress, but now the the biggest judgment of that progression is to come. And, and this summer and next season is, is going to be huge for that. I think this team is a lot more settled than it was a year ago. Certain positions have been filled and you look comfortable with now, but still feels like they need a transfer window where they're signing at least two first-team players, if not three. Yeah, well, that's a very nice segue for my next point, actually, Ty. Thank you for that. I was, I was going to talk about how much Ole Gunnar Solskjaer hasn't really been shy of talking <coughs> about transfers. Uh, Sam, we're recording this on Friday afternoon, not long after his press conference before the Wolves game. And and again, he, he reiterated, I think, as he did after the 1-1 the draw against Fulham, that United need two or three uh, transfers this summer to improve the side and to challenge. He said he say something like, you know, they can't expect it to happen uh, automatically, they need that improvement from from outside and from the, the summer transfer window. Of course, they they are three players minimum short, 
of of having a title challenge inside. I'd say it's at this stage it's it's difficult to see how they're going to go about it. What order of player? I certainly think a centre back is a priority now. I know Solskjaer said when I asked him earlier in the week whether he you know he could rule out signing a striker because they had invested in Cavani, and I was surprised just how how bullish he was about the prospect of them potentially signing a striker. I don't think they will, but he was quite, you know, he said, we, we need to be, he, he effectively he was harking back to the past a little bit and saying that you always need quality strikers. And I think he obviously speaks from the experience of being one of that quartet between 98 and, and 2001 when he had Sheridan, York and Cole uh, to compete with. Uh, but times have changed since then. You certainly do not need, I don't think many teams need three strikers, never mind four strikers. And I just don't really see that as a priority now that they have nailed down Cavani, even though you could easily see it panning out next next season that Cavani isn't quite the same as he is or has been this season. And they'll look back at it and think, well, maybe we should just let him you know, walk off into the sunset on a high and, and, and invest in a striker. But I would say realistically, if they really did want Varane and Sancho, and they definitely want Varane, and they wanted Sancho last year. And I think if Dortmund put Sancho at a price that was enticing, they would go for him again. Those are two players who, conservative estimate, could cost about 140 million, which is is pretty reasonable for two game changers. And that was the phrase that people at United were using when they went through that whole recruitment reboot a couple of years ago. And they talked about signing players that were ready for the first team. Now, that summer, they didn't quite do that. They did with Maguire and Wan-Bissaka, but not Daniel James. The irony with James was that he actually he started so well, certainly in his first first half a season at the club, he was a first-teamer. But when he was signed, nobody saw him as, as a starting player whatsoever. But that summer, they were talking about signing starters, and they only got two of them. Last summer, it was all about strengthening the squad. Van der Beek, Cavani, Tellez, none of them struck you as a first-team signing. Tellez is still a reserve. Van der Beek, I mean, it's just been a disaster. He might come good next season. He needs to come good next season. Otherwise, you might as well write him off. Cavani has eventually shown that he is the best striker at the club and is probably still a world-class striker as well. But last last summer, the, the emphasis was on the on the squad rather than the first-team this summer, the emphasis has to be on the first team. Varane is a first teamer. Sancho is a first teamer. If they somehow were able to invest uh, in, in, in Declan Rice, he would be a first teamer. But as I've said before, I'll say again, because you have to repeat it ad nauseum, there are so many nuances at play in terms of who's being sold, who's going to stay. Solskjaer said today that he doesn't expect too many outgoings. And I think you have to take that with a shovel of salt. There could be at least three goalkeepers leaving. There are certainly two at least are going uh, in, in Joel Pereira and, and Sergio Romero. Lee Grant, will he be off the player's contract? I highly doubt it. I don't really see the need anymore. And then you think about Diogo Dallone and Andres Pereira come back from their loans. They seem surplus. Phil Jones is still lingering. Pogba and Lingard are valuable players who are out of contract next year. I think on the first team section on the club's website, there are 36 players, which is, I mean, it's not a, that's not a bloated squad. That is an obese squad. And they're going to have to trim away at the fat to get it into um, ship shape for the start of next season. And in order to do that, they will have to sell players. And we have seen it in previous summers. They, When they've been guaranteed the funds from a sale, all of a sudden, a signing's possible. It was the case with Harry Maguire. 
they were signing him for 80 million. They were getting 73 million, I think, for Lukaku. And the, the biggest example of it was last year when, within the space for an hour, United announced deals for Tellez coming in, Smalling going out, and both players just happened coincidentally to cost exactly the same fee 15 million euros up front with up to 5 million euros in add ons. So I think if they want to sign three first team players, they will have to make there'll have to be a major sale in there somewhere or maybe two major sales. But I still think they, they can't they can't be using excuses this summer. They can't be using the pandemic as an excuse. They have got to get those three players because they've always said that they want three first first team game changing players to come in. They've got to go for the title next season. They need to properly challenge for it at the very least, if not win it. And this summer is a test of that ambition. And if they fall short of that, then you're looking at the owners getting more grief. They've, they've had plenty as it is at the moment, but also it, it's probably, you know, it might get to a point next season where if they are falling even further behind, where the manager who at the moment is in such a secure position might be in an insecure position. Yeah, that'll be very interesting to, to see how that fluctuates next season. Obviously, United made such a, a horrible start to, to this current season that we had that situation uh, earlier on. And obviously, they did, they did recover the situation. I guess one name, Ty, that, that keeps being brought up and, and has been brought up a lot this week because of the interview that he did with Sky Sports and Gary Neville is Harry Kane. Um, at the moment, he doesn't look to be at a price tag that that many clubs will will want to, to touch him with. But obviously, it's, it's Harry Kane. You know, there's the few, very few strikers in his calibre in world football. You can't argue that he wouldn't improve United, even though, like Samuel says, they've tied down Edinson Cavani and, and it remains to be seen with a striker as a priority. But but what do you make of the Kane situation? It, do United need to pounce? Should they avoid it completely? I, I think it makes sense for United to be in the discussion. Um, you can see why they would want a player of, of Harry Kane's ability. If you know, if the, the Premier League's best player or one of the three best players in the Premier League says he wants to leave a club, then Manchester United should probably always be in the running for his next destination. And it's a signing that would weaken Tottenham. You can't really say Tottenham are a rival to United at the moment, but it could potentially weaken City as well, given their, their need for a striker. But it, it is going to take a lot of money to sign him. He is... I think 28 this summer. I mean, he, he, the way he's reinvented his game in the last couple of years, he strikes you as a player who could go on into his mid-30s pretty easily. But we also know he's he's probably a certainty to miss half a dozen games a season through an ankle injury. He, he picks up a lot of ankle injuries. So there's that element of risk too. I'm also, I'm not sure he tactically fits in to United as well as any other clubs. Uh, I mean, we talk about Fernandez's goal-scoring record and his goal-scoring record from midfield. I mean, Fernandez is not really a midfielder. You know, he plays as, I think, as very much a number 10 when you watch United line up with the ball and, and when they're pressing, he's in a number 10 role. He's always very close to the striker. He does drop back occasionally and offer a link-up play, but generally, positionally-wise, he's a number 10. And I think Kane's game has developed into that role as well at the same time. I think it would be interesting. I mean, they're too... You know, they're two world-class players, so I'm sure they could find a way. But I don't, it doesn't strike me necessarily as a natural fit for Kane and Fernandez to be in the same team. You, it feels like they occupy the same sort of space at the moment. Kane would have to go back to being a, a natural number nine, I think. But we've seen how he adapted his game. I'm sure he can do that. He's a world-class striker. He's the best striker in the Premier League. So, you know, it, it, it makes sense for United to want to be in that discussion for, for what he can offer, I think. The problem is that... If you're looking at spending 120 million on him, that that's money that could also be used. I mean, with that, you could probably sign you could sign maybe Varane and Rice 
maybe maybe you need a little bit more, but not probably not far off signing Varane and Rice for that sort of money. So there is a balance to be to be weighed up there, but you can certainly understand why why United will will want to be in the discussion for him. Yeah, I've been quite amused by the talk of twenty turning twenty eight uh, this July being being old, uh, and that's exactly what I'm about to do. So let's move swiftly <laughs> on from that. But um, Samuel, I guess let's get your your take on the Kane situation. I guess I guess United could put this on hold perhaps with the signing of, of Cavani. There's obviously Erling Haaland to to think about as well. And his release clause comes into activation um, in 2022. So the striker seems like an issue that United can maybe put off for a year. Yes, I think that was the takeaway when they announced the Cavani contract that he extended it. Cavani has shown in certainly in the last month or so that the heights he reaches are are still world-class heights. I think it was very easy. Um, and, and I say this as someone who certainly used to be a Cavani sceptic, but it was mainly because he spent so long uh, with PSG in Liga. And Liga, I know Lille are going to win it this season, or sorry, could win it this season. has seen favourites to win it going into the, the final weekend. But it's been about as competitive as Formula One was when Michael Schumacher was driving in it up until this season. And Cavani, although he's he's got that reputation at PSG as the record goal scorer, legend, etc., he, he did waste time there. I think if you're a serious footballer, you should not be spending as much time with PSG. And it, I say that as someone quite selfishly, who wants to see those footballers up close as often as possible. I know it obviously uh, adds to the glamour of PSG, but you take Neymar, for example, fabulous footballer, though he is, there's something very hollow about him that I think is suited to PSG because they are a hollow club. They are a Qatari commodity. The players turn up on a red carpet. They play uptown funk when goals are scored. There's not a great deal to like about them. But Cavani, fortunately, is is quite a pure footballer in a lot of ways. And I, I say that dated back to his Napoli days and watching him play for Napoli. I think if you're talking about a pure striker in Italy, you, you can't get much better than a brilliant number nine for, for Napoli. You've seen in the you've probably seen the Maradona film how much he was adored out there. And Cavani was another player who was adored out there. But with, with Kane, I mean... It, Looking at the Gary Neville interview, it it was funny. I think Kane said something like, "It's it's I'll dis- ultimately I'll decide what happens." I, I, I'm pretty sure he's aware of what Daniel Levy is capable of and what <laughs> Daniel Levy does, which is Aren't we all? He, he he dictates who goes, when they go, and how much they go for. And especially when you've got three years left on your contract and you're just about, I mean. It's either him or Lewandowski who are the best striker in the world. I'd say Kane is Kane is probably the most valuable striker in world football. It, it's just not going to happen overnight. And there were some reports saying he wants his future resolved before you, the Euros start, which is just wishful thinking. I think him and his brother have been extremely naive, because his brother is his advisor, have been extremely naive about the way they've gone about all this. Not, not just this particular saga, but just agreeing to a six-year contract with Tottenham in 2018. At the time, were Tottenham really on the up and up? I wouldn't have said so. I think that when he did renew, they just lost a semi-final to United. So that was two FA Cup semi-finals in a row they'd lost. People started talking about failure to win anything under Pochettino. And of course, in, in Pochettino's final full season, the league form was dreadful. 
and get into the Champions League final, masked all that. But they they pretty much fluked it to the Champions League final. They were poor. They were the poorer side against City in the quarterfinals. They were the poorer side against Ajax in the semi-finals. And come the final, you just knew that Liverpool were going to beat them. And come the first minute, they give away a penalty, and you might as well end it there. Because unfortunately for Tottenham, they just have a loser's mentality. They don't win anything, and they don't have the players with the skill set to do that. And I can understand why Kane wants to go now he's he's seen he's been there he's stuck it out but he has limited himself to one realistic option this summer which is City I think City are the only club that could come near to what Levy would want in terms of valuation because although we've seen 20 years ago Sol Campbell go from Tottenham to Arsenal I don't think Kane is as callous as Campbell was back then um, and I can't see him going to Chelsea. And I just don't see United coming anywhere near to, to matching City's offer for Kane or, or, or even entering that discussion with, with Levy. There's, there's there's so much that I've written personally and others have written about United's failings, their, their incompetence in dealing with Levy, dating back to Carrick, Berbatov, they pointlessly bid for Bale in 2013. There was the older viral stuff in 2018 as well. Um, they just don't cope. Sorry. Ed Woodward doesn't cope well when he has to deal with Daniel Levy. And I know Woodward's going, but I don't think many people look at Richard Arnold and see him as the as the man to conquer Daniel Levy at all. So, as, as I said, I think Kane has really restricted himself. And it wouldn't surprise me if Tottenham do hang on to him for another year, which would suit United because then they've got a chance to look at Kane next year, possibly, or Haaland. And, and they... They would have to go for one of them. If both of them are still at the clubs they're at this summer, they have to go for one of them next year because Cavani has got a limited shelf life. Yeah, absolutely. Be 35 by then. And, and like like I said, Haaland's release cause maybe comes into action. If Kane's still at Spurs, we'll have to see how that one pans out. It should be very, very interesting and certainly interesting how United's forward line shapes up. I guess uh, the forward line is one of the main dilemmas that Solskjaer still has for the uh, Europa League final in more short-term matters, uh, Tyrone's obviously this game against Wolves on Sunday. We expect, do we, that, that Solskjaer will make multiple changes? We'll go to basically a, a B team for the Wolves game and that may sort of inform what his thinking is for Wednesday night and Gdansk against Villarreal. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure we can ever expect anything with Solskjaer and, and team selections, to be honest. Having heard his press conference, I'm fully expecting Harry Maguire and Anthony Martial to start. <laughs> um, I mean, the, Mar- the Martial scenario this week has been mind-boggling that on Monday he was going to be in the squad on Tuesday. On Tuesday he was nowhere near the squad and the France squad was named and he wasn't even in that. He was so injured and now he's seemingly out of the final again. So I don't, I'm not even sure Soscar knows what's going on with, with injuries. I think he's gone so far down the uh, road of rabbit holes on the, on injuries that it's hard to know what's going on, but yeah, I mean, it does seem those two are out and it, it, to me, it doesn't make any sense to start anyone really who's going to start the final. I think the only one will be one of the two centre halves. I imagine Bayer Twanzebe will start here. I don't think it's a shoe in now that Bayer starts alongside Lindelof in Gdansk. I think Twanzebe started both games recently on the left of the centre back pairing, which is obviously where the where Maguire normally plays and where that where that position would would probably be. So it you know it does feel like it might be a, a chance for Twanzebe to to come in there. Um, thought he played quite quite well the other night and what was a disappointing result. And it just felt it felt that like that Fulham team 
was pretty much the one that was going to start the final. And it felt strange that Twanzibi was in it and Bailly wasn't. I don't, with Bailly's injury record, I'm not sure you'd want to start him on a Sunday and then on a Wednesday in a final. So I don't think it's a shoe in Bailly starts. But beyond that, I'd be picking pretty much a, a very similar team to the one that played against Leicester um, last week. And yeah, trying to, trying to rest everyone ahead of Gdansk. I don't think it's worth taking an injury risk with anyone, really. Ty, would you drop Rashford for the final? I would, yeah. I'll play Greenwood. Yeah. Um, I don't I think Solskjaer will. I think Solskjaer will play Rashford, but I'll definitely yeah. play Greenwood. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I, I can't see Solskjaer dropping Rashford for the final, but I think if you do a poll of fans, season ticket holders, they'd probably have Greenwood in. I think the news that, that Fred and McTominay were both doubts, although Solskjaer has now said they both should be okay, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. But I think that, that fueled a bit of positivity that maybe Pogba would start deeper and mm. you could get Rashford and Green, Greenwood both playing the final, but that seems like maybe too bold for for a final possibly and and Pogba has of late played well from the left he's he's played he's had some of his most influential games for united from that role uh you know he salvaged the uh, last 16 tie against milan against tottenham okay you got the Mourinho factor which does seem to motivate pogba a little bit more but he was he was phenomenal in that game and he he can dictate games more from further afield i think i, I don't think the deeper role suits him as much um he, he has played well there particularly for france at the world cup but and i mean there was a time where united fans didn't want him to play anywhere other than the the two in midfield but the world cup was you know that that was kind of like proof the naysayers wrong but when you're in that environment a month-long tournament you're going for that one goal of winning the most valuable prize in world football world sport even you'll play anywhere as long as you can you know as, as long as it uh, helps your chance of winning it. Are you trying to say that the Europa League final is not the most valuable prize in world sports, Samuel? I can't, be- I can't believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, um, uh, well it, yeah. even the, the, the Glazers probably going off there thinking they probably wouldn't even have had it in the museum after what they tried to pull recently. Well, have to be there if United win it on Wednesday night for sure. Samuel, will United end the season on a winning note? Finally, get a win at Wolves in uh, in Nuno's last game. I think it will be a draw because I think. Part of Wolves, Wolves have got fans back. And as we know, Molyneux does generate a very good atmosphere. Uh, and because it's Nuno's final game, I think there'll be an element of Wolves wanting to you know, do it for him to try and put on a performance. United are going to have mass rotation. They, they need to, really. But of course, they, they want to maintain that unbeaten uh, away league run for, for the whole season. So... Having said that, United would comfortably win both games this week, and then seeing how they played against Fulham, uh, I'm going to decide to go with the draw for Sunday. Tyrone, yeah, I I don't see United winning if they're going to make um, mass changes, which, as we say, they Solskjaer really needs to. It does feel like a real tricky game for them now. Wolves have been abject of late, they really have, but with it being Nuno's last game, with the return of fans, it does kind of feel set up for them to produce one last hurrah. I'll I'll go with a draw as well, just because I think although it's you know it it's I want to say an irrelevant achievement, but they've not won the league, so it doesn't overly matter. But to go a full season unbeaten away from home, even in an era of no crowds, I think would be a good achievement, and it'd be a shame if that if that falls down at the final hurdle. But Solskjaer's hands are tied really when it comes to selection, or at least they should be. So I think you've got to take the risk that the team he picks aren't good enough to to beat 
a fired up Wolves, but hopefully they can hopefully they can edge a draw out of it. Yeah, I think if I was to have one bet, it would be on maybe Anthony Langa or Shola Shuratire scoring because those end of season dead rubbers with uh, Josh Harrop and James Wilson in the past mm-hmm. always seem to see an academy player uh, burst through. But uh, that remains to be seen. That's about all we've got time for for today's podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Samuel and Tyrone. Thank you very much, Tom. And we'll be back again, as I say, next week to preview the big Europa League final against Villarreal. You can obviously leave us a like and a subscribe on the Manchester is Red podcast feed. And we'll be back with you very, very soon. Thanks for listening.